just continuing this exploration of anatta uh, and how last week I situated it in the context of the Buddha's teachings on the three universal characteristics, which you may remember are... Very good, you're redeemed. <laughs> Anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not self. And today I want to come back to these three characteristics and focus more on dukkha, the second one. Because in many ways, how we relate to dukkha is really the core of what all of the Buddha's teachings are about. So we see this very clearly and obviously in the context of the Four Noble Truths, where the Buddha lays out a series of understandings that bring us away from dukkha to complete freedom of heart and mind. And in the first of these Four Noble Truths, the Buddha defines what he means by dukkha. I'd like to read you a translation by Piyadasi Tara. The noble truth of suffering, dukkha practitioners, is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Association with the unpleasant is suffering. Dissociation from the pleasant is suffering. Not to receive what one desires is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So that's pretty comprehensive, and we could probably spend the next five weeks just exploring that one paragraph. But I'd, what I'd like to highlight is that dukkha begins with the most basic aspect of being human which is our physicality having a body because we're born into a human body we are subject to aging and to death none of us are immune to these processes we're born we're going to get old we're going to die and again on one level this is utterly obvious But how many of us actually live with that understanding front and center? Most of us, most of the time, are trying to live in as much denial of this truth as we possibly can. And I'll be coming back to that point later. But then beyond the physical dukkha, we also have psychological dukkha. The Buddha pointed out, as well as the stress of having a body, we have the mental and psychological stresses of being in the world, the, quote, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair that we all are subject to at times, often brought on by not getting what we want, as the Sutta says. And this definition of dukkha also includes a relational aspect, a social aspect, It refers to the stress of being separated from the people and the things that we love or having to be with the people and the things that we loathe. 
So even if we've somehow managed to so far escape the intensity of illness or accident and other life challenges, I'm pretty sure all of us at times have experienced the relational dukkha of separation from the loved or association with the unloved. So this definition includes, it's pretty comprehensive. And I'd like to read you Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, framing of it because it it really uh, heightens for me what this noble truth is pointing to. So Bhikkhu Bodhi summarizes it like this. He says, The Buddha starts with what is close at hand, with the suffering inherent in the physical process of life itself. Here, Dukkha shows up in the events of birth, aging and death, in our susceptibility to sickness, accidents and injuries, and to hunger and thirst. It appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations and events, in the sorrow, anger, frustration and fear aroused by painful separation, by unpleasant encounters, by the failure to get what we want. Even our pleasures, the Buddha says, are not immune from dukkha. They give us happiness while they last, but they do not last forever. Eventually they must pass away, and when they go, the loss leaves us feeling deprived. Our lives, for the most part, are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. We spend our days running after the one and running away from the other, seldom enjoying the peace of contentment. Real satisfaction seems somehow always out of our grasp, just beyond the next horizon. Then, in the end, we have to die to give up the identity that we spent our whole life building, to leave behind everything and everyone we love. What's it like to hear the first noble truth laid out like this? I don't know about for you, but for me it's pretty sobering. When we really start to let that in, And perhaps you're wondering, well, how does this relate to anatta, to not-self? Well, there's a clue in the last sentence that Bhikkhu Bodhi gave. Eventually, we have to give up the identity that we spent our whole life building. And there's also a clue in the last statement of the Buddha's definition of dukkha, where he says, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha, are stressful. And elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha defined these that any form of clinging to experience, any craving for it, any identifying with it or taking it personally, only serves to amplify dukkha, suffering. So clinging and craving and identifying are all ways that we resist our experience. And it's worth learning to recognize our patterns of resistance Because to the extent that we resist what's going on, to that same extent we suffer. So I've shared with some of you on retreat a formula that the U.S. Dharma teacher, Shinzen Young, put put together. 
he was a mathematician, so he has this short mathemat mathematical formula. It's S equals P times R. Anybody remember what that is? Someone know what that is? Take a guess. Suffering equals uh, pain times identification. Resistance, yes, yes. S equals P times R. Oh. Suffering equals pain times resistance. And what that's pointing to is that some amount of pain, whether it's physical or psychological, is inevitable. None of us are immune from that. But what we do have control over our, is our relationship to it, how much we resist it, struggle with it, resent it, fight it, and so on. That only serves to amplify S, the suffering and that's one reason why in mindfulness practice we put so much emphasis on cultivating bare awareness, bare attention, just knowing the immediacy of our experience as it is without our habitual tendency to add reactivity to it. And there's a particular form of reactivity that amplifies the suffering of resistance even more, and Henny actually pointed to it, it's the tendency to identify with our experience, to take it personally, to make it all about me, mine, who I am. So I sometimes reframe Shinzen Young's formula as S equals P times I. Mm -hmm. Suffering is pain multiplied by identification. Because the more we add a sense of I to any situation, again, the more we suffer. And this is what the Buddha was pointing to when he said, in short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. So what are these five clinging aggregates? And how do they fit into this exploration of anatta, of not-self? I'll give you the list very briefly now, just to give you some context. But it's a fairly technical and comprehensive teaching, so we'll be coming back to it over the next few weeks. So the first of the five is material form, matter, including our own bodies. The second is feeling tone. Those of you who are familiar with Pali, Vedana, feeling tone, knowing whether an experience registers as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The third is perceptions. Ability of the mind to recognize, to name, to know, to remember what things are. Pollywood is sanya. The fourth, volitional formations, mental constructions, mental fab fabrications, sankara. And the fifth is consciousness, vijnana. The consciousness that comes with input at all six senses, so consciousness of sights, of sounds, of smells, of tastes, of physical sensations, and of mental activity. Got that? Next. <laughs> it's a lot. So just to give a little bit of context about the purpose of these teachings, if you remember last week I said Vipassana can literally be translated as seeing clearly, seeing distinctly, seeing separately. And that 
I use the analogy of the movie projector that Vipassana is helping us take our attention away from the enchantment of what's happening on the screen to see instead the mechanism of how we're fabricating a lot of that experience. So these five aggregates are a way of helping us deconstruct our sense of self by seeing the interplay of these different types of experience coming together to form a sense of me, who I am. So the word aggregate, the Pali word is kanda, and prior to the Buddha, the Pali word kanda had a very ordinary meaning of just heap or bundle or pile. And I think the Buddha here was just saying there are these different heaps of experience of, that we can see coming together and these the particular heaps that he chose are heaps where we tend to habitually identify with. So, for example, the first one, the body, as many of you were pointing to, we tend to take the body to be who we are. And I'll come back to that soon. But when we don't have mindfulness, when we don't have wisdom, we tend to just see the interplay of these five heaps of experience as being a solid, fixed me to whom all of this is happening. And there's a sutta that uses the analogy of a dog being tied to a post. And I'll read it to you. The language is quite complex, but it's pointing to the distinction between bondage that comes when we cling to the aggregates and freedom that comes when we are able to not identify with them. So just let the words wash over you and see what might stick. Suppose a dog on a leash was tethered to a strong post or pillar. Whether walking, standing, sitting or lying down, it stays right beside that post or pillar. In the same way, an uneducated, ordinary person regards material form like this. This is mine. I am this. This is myself. They regard feeling tone and perception and mental formations and consciousness like this. This is mine. I am this. This is myself. When walking... They walk right beside the five clinging aggregates. When standing and sitting and lying down, they lie down right beside the five clinging aggregates. So you should regularly check your own mind. For a long time, this mind has been corrupted by greed, hatred and delusion. Sentient beings are corrupted because the mind is corrupted and they are purified because the mind is purified. What do you think, practitioners? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Anybody? Impermanent, yes. Yes. And likewise in the sutta, the practitioner said, these are impermanent, venerable sir. And the Buddha went on to say, how about feeling? perception, mental formations, consciousness, are these permanent or impermanent? And again, the answer is impermanent. And the Buddha said, so you should truly see. Seeing this, they understand. 
There is no return to any state of existence. And that last phrase is an epithet for nibbana, for freedom. So it's this clear seeing of the impermanence of all of the aggregates and of not identifying them as this is me, this is mine, this is myself, that leads to the freedom of nibbana. So, perhaps this is still, for some of you, feeling a little bit abstract. So let's bring it down to earth, make it more practical, and start with the first of these five aggregates, which is material form, and particularly the aspect of the body, which, as we've been talking about, many of us habitually cling to and identify with pretty strongly at times. And we can see this clinging in action, for example, when we resist the truth of our body's impermanence. We try to hold on to our youth or our health. We cling to our physical attractiveness, our physical fitness, our sexual energy. We can see this not only in ourselves, but in the wider society in the media and in advertising and in all the industries such as the cosmetics industry and plastic surgery and bodybuilding and pharmaceuticals and medical tourism and all of those kind of things, the infinite ways that we're really encouraged to try to control and to enhance our bodies through these different diets and exercises and interventions, makeup and surgery and so on. And for many people, identification with the body consumes huge amounts of time and energy. When I was visiting England a couple of years ago, I would go on sometimes long train trips to visit relatives and friends. And often there were commuters going to work on these trains. And I was amazed how many women would get on with these small crates of cosmetics and then they would sit there on their way to work and they'd be like putting on their makeup literally an hour and a half from the time they got on the train to the time they got off staring at themselves in the mirror and I would feel exhausted you know just watching them like with all the different products on all the different parts of the face and things to be tweaked and adjusted and Wow, and I was really grateful that I didn't have to spend an hour and a half at least doing that every day and then who knows, at the other end, taking it all off again. And it's not only women, you know, men have different ways that they get obsessed about their bodies, perhaps with weightlifting or bodybuilding or physical fitness. And in saying this, it's not that we're supposed to neglect the body or just turn into unhygienic slobs, but... It's, again, the middle way of taking care of the body without the unconscious expectation that if I can just paint my face perfectly or sculpt my body perfectly, then I'm going to live happily ever after. And that's one reason why in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, we start with mindfulness of the body. And in that sutta, every... Method. there are six different practices in the first foundation of mindfulness and every one of them is aimed at creating a more realistic and wise relationship with our physical bodies. There are six different techniques, as I said. 
So in addition to mindfulness of breathing, which we were practicing earlier, there's mindfulness of the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. There is mindfulness of daily activities, eating, sleeping, urinating, defecating, speaking, staying silent, and so on. Nothing is left out in terms of daily activities. There's mindfulness of the anatomical parts of the body, the 32 parts that were identified. And then there's mindfulness of the elemental nature of the body, qualities of uh, earth and fire and water and wind. And then there's mindfulness of the corpse in decay, which is actually the biggest section, and it's the one that's conveniently ignored in the way that uh, mindfulness is usually presented in the West at least. So there are these six different practices and after each practice is described there's a refrain. Some of you might be familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta. This refrain appears 44 times through the course of the whole Sutta. It's like the chorus of a song. And in relation to the body, this is what it says, one abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body. One abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. One abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that, quote, there is a body, end quote, is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body. So for our purposes, we see impermanence, the arising and passing away of phenomena known through the body, and the non-identification, the non-clinging, abiding independent. So this quality of bare awareness, non-reactivity and non-identification is encouraged in every aspect of this practice of mindfulness of the body, just as we were doing in the introduction meditation that I led earlier. So that's a lot to digest. Let's take some time just to refresh the body, and then we'll move into some interactive practice after about a a 10-minute break. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.